Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, this idea came to me because you see a lot of roundtables that are very successful, and they're successful bringing a lot of people from tech to talk news. I thought cryptocurrency is exploding. Let's get some of the smartest guys in the room. Let's get them on a live stream because they're all across the country at this point. And chit chat. So today we have some of, in my opinion, the best guys I know in the business. We've got Gil Pencina. Gil, we'll give him a little bit of an intro. I think five unicorns at this point. Doing an ICO, running the flight venture, which means he essentially owns AngelList. And that, uh, <laughs> that, connects him, that connects him pretty well to Andy. Andy Bromberg, CEO of CoinList. In my opinion, one of the reputable places for ICOs. They've done, I think, 205, 210 million in funding right now for Filecoin and are scaling up pretty quickly. We've got Lou Kerner. Lou is an angel, a VC, a cryptomaniac, and he runs one of the larger meetups, I think, in New York City, all talking crypto. So, guys, thanks. Welcome to the program. And hopefully, we'll get into better introductions. I found I'm terrible at introducing people. So, how about you guys take a second and introduce yourselves? Go first, um, Lou. Sure. So, uh, uh... I'm on Career 3. I was an equity analyst at Goldman in the 90s. I ran a couple of companies in the last decade. The most successful one was the top-level domain.tv. Became a VC about six years ago. Uh, started focusing on Israel about three years ago um, as a partner, actually, of, of Gills at Flight VC, running the Israel Founder Syndicate. And uh, I went down uh, the crypto rabbit hole for about nine months in 2013, long enough. I say for uh, the Wall Street Journal, they wrote a story on Bitcoin, quoted me as, as Wall Street's Bitcoin expert. But after looking at it for nine months and looking at it, looking at it, I actually never saw it. I kind of walked away. And uh, on June 29th, I was holding a conference call with um, on ICOs and Olaf from Polychain Capital said something that just for me made everything click. And literally, I, I really felt like I saw the crypto light and I literally stopped everything else I was doing. And for the last five months, I've been 100% focused on uh on crypto, I've been blogging like a maniac on Medium. I, I blog and write to learn. And uh, uh, today, I'm the fifth most influential blogger on Medium on the uh, on crypto on the Medium platform. And I'm an active uh, crypto investor, advisor, and blogger. And Flight.VC Syndicate, that's very interesting. You guys have the connection. That's how we got connected. Gil, what is the story? How many syndicates do you have? How much backing is this? And how in God's name did you get started with Angel and then crypto? Uh, I lost count of how many syndicates, somewhere around 30. So actually a question. Good question. I should go back and count. I mean, I'm just sort of your typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I, I've been part of a number of interesting companies like eBay and Fastly and others as a founder or executive. Did a hundred investment. Hey Gil, wherever you are, is, uh, get, not, not getting a great signal. He has a time machine. He's he's so right. far in advance. That's how he hits the unicorns. Gil, <laughs> I think I'll, we got him. I'll, back. I'll move. And am I better? I think you're good now. Go for it's it. Better. All right. I've done a couple hundred angel investments, and when Angelus came along, I think I was the only one dumb enough to think it was a good idea. Most VCs thought it was terrible, and most entrepreneurs were too busy. And I happened to be unemployed and enjoy angel investing. So it was sort of a good combo. Next thing I knew, I had you know, tens of millions of dollars in backing from thousands of people and was putting a bunch of money to work. And you know, in a lot of ways, you can think of AngelList as pre-ICO crowdfunding. And so when these ICOs started taking off, it seemed like sort of a natural transition for me. And much like Lou, I fell down the rabbit hole and I was <laughs> investing in ICOs. I was advising them. I was reading everything I could. I was going to conferences and you know, now I've helped a couple of friends start various, you know, ICO a bull projects. You know, we'll see if they actually do uh, make it out in this regulatory climate. And it's just sort of exciting to see, frankly, the amount of money and the amount of engineering talent piling into this because there's an old Silicon Valley aphorism that 
you follow the money and the talent. And that's where the interesting things are. And the talent follows the money. With the regulatory thing, we'll get into that in a sec. But now we've got Andy Bromberg, CEO of CoinList. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into this, Andy, because you have a huge perspective on this. Yeah, sure thing. So I, uh, I started CoinList along with my, my co-founders and spun out of AngelList in collaboration with Protocol Labs a few months ago in early, uh, early August. And it originally emerged from the collaboration between Protocol Labs and AngelList to run the Filecoin ICO out in order to facilitate other token sales and other, uh, other offerings. And uh, you know, prior to that, uh, I was running a company called Sidewire in the media space. Um, and before that, I had uh, founded the Stanford Bitcoin Group back in 2012, 2013, my first exposure to, uh, to crypto. And that was uh, originally, well, just sort of a son, now CEO of Earn.com. Um, at that point, a Stanford professor, uh, and then he became a partner in Dresden Horowitz. He was the one who introduced a few of us to Bitcoin back in 2012. Part of the Stanford Bitcoin Group, a bunch of academic studies on crypto, moral um, uh, stuff, and, and educating venture capitalists and other folks. And the stable space for the last few years, advising people up and out. And now we've got Joey Krug. You made it. Thanks for coming, Joey. Tell us, people, a little bit more about how you got into cryptocurrency, what your background is, and what you're excited about. Well, thank, thanks for having me. Can you guys hear me fine? Loud and clear. Cool. Um, so my background is I, I got into cryptocurrency in 2011. I basically saw this post on an online forum called overclock.net because I used to, you know, overclock my, my desktop computer all the time. And it was about how you could earn money with your graphics card. And that seemed, you know, like complete BS to me. Um, six weeks later, though, it was still the top post on the forum. But I said, hey, you know what, might as well check it out. So one weekend, I... I <laughs> You know, looked at it, came across the Bitcoin white paper, thought it was really cool because it was the first time I'd seen money that wasn't really controlled by government and that wasn't really going to be shut down. You know, there'd been Liberty Reserve, Liberty Dollars, whatever, but those were all shut down. So I started mining Bitcoin and then didn't really do a whole lot until 2013 when I uh, thought, well, if Bitcoin's going to be used for anything, you need to be able to wait to pay for stuff with the store. So I made a point of sale add on every point of sale system in the US ignoring Square, so like most of them, they use this protocol to send the, send the pricing data over to the credit card reader. And it's not encrypted, so you can very easily reverse engineer how it works. And I made a little Android add-on device where you'd plug a little Bluetooth thing into the serial port on the point of sale, it transmits the data over to the Android device, and the experience was super simple for the merchant. Of course, the problem here is that no consumer wanted to use Bitcoin, and there's not any incentive for a consumer to use Bitcoin because with a credit card, they get cash back, but with Bitcoin, they don't. And so that kind of changed my thinking about it. And I realized that it probably wasn't really going to be used for payments, at least not Bitcoin. And so my thought kind of shifted a bit. And I realized that I, I personally thought in the next five to 10 years, this is back in 2014, thought in the next five to 10 years, the most powerful applications of the tech would be things that exist, mostly in the virtual world. And then I kind of hit upon this idea that, well, if you can't use Bitcoin for payments, it's not really a decentralized financial system either because say I want to make a bet in Bitcoin, I have to send the money to a third party who I have to trust and trust that they'll pay out the bet you know, appropriately. And so I thought, well, it'd be really great if we had a decentralized financial system to actually use stuff like Bitcoin in. And so in 2014, with a guy named Jack Peterson, I started a project called Augur, which is the idea was basically to create a decentralized prediction market. And the idea is to allow people to speculate on any possible future event you know, globally with very low fees, all on Ethereum. They're looking at legalizing gambling in a lot of states in the U.S. now. What do you guys What do you guys think about implications of that algor and then blockchain in general? So, you know, I, I think I think legalization of more forms of, of quote unquote gambling are are good. If you look at the history of financial markets, every single financial market, stocks, bonds, futures, options, credit default swaps, anything has always been called gambling in the beginning. Then a matter of you know years or decades pass, and then people realize that it's actually useful for certain things. So lots of things that people consider gambling, you know, are they actually do have a lot of skill involved. If you take something, you know, even even as like simple as betting on soccer matches, ninety nine percent of the winnings go to one percent of the betters. So either those one percent of people are you know statistically impossibly that lucky, which is very unlikely, or they actually have skill. And if they have skill, you know, I, I don't see any problem with letting them bet on it. 
other thing is governments themselves run all sorts of gambling things. They're called lotteries. And, and so I think, you know, you know, in my opinion, most, most forms of gambling should be legalized. You know, there are certain times and places where regulation is appropriate, but there are also other times and places where, you know, it is my money. I want to be able to spend it on what I want. If I can buy an OTC penny stock and I can bet in, you know, the Illinois lottery, why can't I you know, bet on a soccer match in the U.S.? That's my kind of thought on it. Andy, any thoughts on the regulation side of things, where we're headed, and then everybody in general, just what you're seeing? Yeah, I think, well, for for gambling or, or whatever you want to call that class of um, you know, placing monetary... Just, just cryptocurrencies as a whole. Oh, yeah, and ICOs in general. Well, so I think, you know, what we would say is that there's been a, a such a new concept uh, that there's been a distinct lack of targeted regulation towards... ICOs and towards cryptocurrencies just because there hasn't been time for regulators to fully understand it and then decide what the right path forward is. Um, that said, we certainly believe that regulation is coming, it will come, and it's a matter of figuring out what form it's going to take and how we can best address it and try and help shape that dialogue and shape that policy. Uh, and so you know, right now, coming to particular focus on providing services around that relevant already, and also future proofing and making sure that you know, if there are things we're pretty sure are going to happen, then you know, we should be trying to comply with those future regulations as well. But that said, I think you know a, a core use case for cryptocurrency is whatever term you want to use, regulatory arbitrage or, or censorship resistance, or all these things are, are very related. And it's the idea that when you have a truly distributed network, you can use that in order to build as value on the basis of the regulation being on the regulation being challenged that topic. And so I, you know, when we're focused on a kind of providing clients or services to help them handle the regulatory burden, I also do think that part of the promise of cryptocurrency is that more broadly, some of the network value will often be built on arbitraging different regulatory regimes and figuring out ways to, uh, to build businesses that should exist but are unable to for Sounds very libertarian. So as we as we decentralize <laughs> regulation and money, do we need government? That's that's one of the questions everybody wants to know. Somebody take it. Well, look, the decentralization, I think, is the biggest thing that's going on, right? We have these new technologies, obviously blockchain, cryptocurrency, smart contracts that are enabling really anything to be anything. It's it's an infinite number of possibilities now that uh you know that are possible and you know the the genie's out of the bottle there's no putting it back and the question that every government you know is asking itself whether it's a city government a state government or or a sovereign nation is how are they going to address the fact that you know as people around the world get smarter that most of them are going to prefer to hold bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies uh, uh than their own currency and, you know, that's a challenge that I don't think anybody knows uh, the answer to, but it's, it's going to be a challenge for every government in the world. And, um, you know, uh, some are going to try and fight it and stop it, uh, like China's doing with the ICOs. But I think what you're going to see is more countries are going to be like Switzerland, and they're going to try to engage with it, realizing that it's the future, and try to, you know, create a bigger economy because of it. I try to explain the Swiss side of things to people. So I'm actually living in Zurich right now. My wife is Swiss. <laughs> and people, p- cryptocurrency, Zug, most people say it wrong, but Zug is the capital of the world for cryptocurrency, probably London, probably New York City, Singapore as well. But the thing that they're doing really well is innovating when it comes to cryptocurrency, specifically because they're scared shitless. Switzerland's banking, fintech. And when things get busted up, new things get created, new things get innovated. And people like Joey, start funds focused on cryptocurrencies. Talk about Pantera Capital. Joey, what do you guys look at? How did you get into that? And what's the space look like for investing in cryptocurrencies? How do I choose what to invest in? There's way too many ICOs. What do you look for? Yeah, so the way I kind of got or the way I, the way I got involved with Pantera initially was so I had this Angelus syndicate for a few years. And well initially I talked to the Pantera guys with with Augur. And we passed all the due diligence. They're ready to invest. And their lawyer said, oh, no, you can't invest in tokens because it's against your LP agreement. That was back in 2014. And then early uh, early 2017, with Polychain, I had led an investment round into this project called 0x, a decentralized exchange. 
And I also introduced them to Pantera. Pantera loved the project, ended up investing. And when they started looking at the stuff that I had invested in on AngelList, they realized that our, our thoughts on, on investing aligned quite a bit. And so I kept talking to them and they mentioned how they wanted to kind of start a more generalized blockchain fund. So Pantera originally was a regular global macro fund started in 2003 by Dan Moorhead. He's CFO, CFO and had a global macro at Tiger Management. And then in 2013, started a Bitcoin buy and hold fund. And then, um, you know, the idea here was to, buy, to, to start some new funds to actually kind of more actively trade the space. And it's something I've been thinking about a long time as well. And it made a whole lot of sense for me to join with Pantera because I understand the tech side of it really well. Dan really understands the trading side of it. And so it's just kind of worked out really well. As far as how we think about, about the space, I think kind of if, if you had to think about it in kind of one kind of simple line, I think it would be we look for things where today there's currently some central intermediary who's extracting a lot of rent or charging a lot of fees where they're not really adding near as much value proportional to the fees that they charge. And we like to find things that can remove those intermediaries and you know drop the cost for things a lot. Um, what are the best industries for those, in your opinion? Yes, yeah, so I think the the kind of lowest hanging, you know, most obvious fruit is things like finance. So, so do you, Joey, do you worry about you being disintermediated, given that uh, uh, we take huge fees from sitting in the middle? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. You know, you know, it depends how how high fees you charge, right? My guess is you're charging it, pretty high it, fees. They're pretty pretty standard. Uh, uh, Which are but, really high. The standard fees are high. But, uh, that's why. Uh, you know, uh, yes, I'm, that's true, I'm just saying, but, uh, I'm, I mean, it's me too. I'm, I'm, you know, I want to charge high fees too. I just worry about yeah. it. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think provided you're actually adding sufficient value, yeah, I think it's worth it. If you're really, yeah. So, so, but, but you think other people don't add value who charge high fees? I'm just saying, you know, I think we all got to look in the mirror. Oh yeah, and, and just be realistic. Yeah, I think there's there are a other people who there's a difference between there's a difference between. So, so the idea of fees is basically you want to charge fees for things that are useful to pay for and useful to have. If you're a hedge fund and you're charging two and twenty and you're underperforming, underperforming the market by sixty six percent, your fees are not worth paying. And there are funds in the space that fit that exact descriptor. <laughs> so should if fees you want to name any the returns then? And, and Andy, you were saying something. Yeah, well, I was going to say I think there's also a, a, a pretty clear distinction between some financial services that involve you know necessarily human judgment. Versus others that don't. So Xerox is a great example of why why should an exchange have fees, right? There's, you know, in theory, there is minimal value added from any sort of human in the loop process there. And so possible to design a protocol where there's there's no fees there, then that should be done. But you know, if you're on a discretionary basis investing in certain cryptocurrencies and you want to invest in that manager as an LP, then there's no replacement for that that can have no fees. If that manager is going to outperform the market, then you should you know, place your bet on them and be happy to pay the fees because you know, net of fees, you will still be up money. So for me, I think there's a, a, a distinction between certainly I think maybe the low end of investors get disintermediated there. And there's a question of you know, whether truly algorithmic investing can do better. But uh, at the high end, great managers outperform and are worth paying fees to but there's a, a broad set of financial services where it doesn't make sense to pay fees because you don't actually add that much value. And the service does not add that much value. I think that's similarly to how um, it kind of has, has been playing out with AngelList, which is the kind of lower tier funds are all being disintermediated by really good high quality syndicates. But the you know really well-known funds that get good returns, like the Sequoias, the founders funds of the world, they're still going to be around. People are willing to pay them fees because of the value they add. But you know, a lot of the a lot of venture funds, you know, don't add that much value, and a syndicate with you know 100 people behind it adds much more value than them, and so they're starting to be disintermediated. I can see the same thing easily happening to the hedge fund industry. You know, if you look at projects like Mellonport and stuff. So does it all become like a social capital? It might, but you've also got guys like CoinList, right, who are I guess trying to become intermediaries again. Although I don't really understand what their business model (laughs) is. And you could argue ICOs are really disrupting most of the financial service business that Lou's talking about, right? VCs and angels are both getting pushed aside as people go direct and do more Kickstarter-style campaigns. So I think it's fluid, right? The, the money is always moving around, and the fees are always adjusting to what, where the money's going. 
what happens when the money crashes? Most of these tokens are completely worthless. They, there's utility tokens that are actually securities. For not, not all of them, there's a lot that are very successful and are doing real things. But I, I think we can all agree that most of the ICOs are, what's the fastest way for us to raise a shit ton of money? And so VC said no. To be fair, I saw 52 photo hosting sites. One of them was Flickr and got bought by Yahoo. One of them was PhotoBucket and got bought by MySpace. I thought both of those were shit. And the other 50 failed. So welcome to early stage investing, right? It is enormously <laughs> risky. It requires you to have a, a portfolio because if you think you can pick the right one, you're wrong, no matter how smart you are. And it requires, you know, a lot of judgment and due diligence and that, you know, to sort of combat loose point, that's one of the things people like to pay for because they're not always sure they have it. But then how do yeah, you and I think I Go ahead. I, I, I mean, I agree with Kit Gill. Like that, you know, people are talking about it. Like you're talking about it. Like this is a new thing. Like there's never been a scam before. There were ICOs. Like when the internet happened, there weren't scams. And I think focusing on the scams, <laughs> I'm not saying that 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 they're bad. <laughs> I mean that they're good. They're obviously bad. But you know, the, all of this mindshare being focused on the scams and and the bad companies is missing out on the fact that this is yeah. the biggest thing to happen mm-hmm. in the history of mankind. And 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 all that is is in the long run going to be nothing but noise with regards to the massive value that's going to be created. But how do you deal yeah, with a good it? point, Lou, right? There, there's sort of three interesting things. The, the ICOs are one of <laughs> them. The decentralized government free technology is the second one. And there's the resource utilization protocol that allows everyone to create a planetary computer and planetary storage system. That's a third one. And each of them is fascinating and potentially very impactful in its own right. And people conflate the three sometimes, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I actually think that the, I'm sorry. Yeah, we would argue that that ICOs are, are, you know, kind of they're purely a mechanism for enabling these tokens to to exist or, or to get distributed to the right people. And, I, you know, we break down the token market into three categories. It's not really novel, obviously, but you know, protocol tokens, application tokens and securities tokens. And you know, I think the last category of asset backed securities tokens hasn't been explored really fully yet. There's only been a couple, and, and people are starting to think about it a little bit more. But the first two categories, whether you're talking about you know, core protocols, um, Ethereum, or uh, you know, I like the term application protocols, is the other kind of valuable set, something like a, a Civic that sits on top of you know, something like Ethereum and actually enables a, a certain set of applications to be used, or an auger. Um, and uh, you know, ICOs, we actually, you know, Coinless is a, is a service for facilitating ICOs and token sales. We actually don't think ICOs themselves are that interest. They're just a, they're a funding mechanism for the really technically interesting projects that exist. And I don't think every token should do an ICO. Many of them should, uh, but for others, other solutions like airdrops or more direct distribution methods might be might be a better fit. Really, a mechanism to, to get that initial distribution, initial capital, not so much something that we think is is interesting. So. You know, is when, when, when I think of CoinList and, and, and what you guys are doing, it seems that, you know, because of, you know, to some degree, you know, Angelus and, and Naval's kind of preeminence, uh, uh, you know, in the startup community that that CoinList was formed and, and very quickly kind of, you know, became the Goldman Sachs of I, ICO platforms. And, and just the fact that you guys are choosing Filecoin and that you guys are now going to choose be choosing the next thing is in and of itself kind of as strong a signal as I think exists in the market with, you know, for most people with regards to what quality is, is that, is that kind of, is that a reasonable way to be looking at things? Well, we think, I mean, to the point that, that a couple of people have made now, yeah, there's, there's a lot of noise in this space and very little signal, but when there is signal, it's incredibly powerful and Coinless certainly uh, wants to be seen as the place where the highly vetted high quality projects do their token sales. So we did Filecoin, uh, Blockstack is wrapping up soon, got you now starting tomorrow. And, and it goes through a really extensive diligence process before it gets listed on the platform. We also offer on the back end just uh, compliance services. So purely you know, know your customer and anti-money laundering and investor accreditation. And we're willing to provide that really broadly as a white-labeled solution to you know, many token sales. But for the ones that are actually listed on CoinList and are being marketed to people on the CoinList platform... And we want that to be just the, the highest quality projects. Gil, a question for you. You brought up Flickr. So Stuart Butterfield didn't 
started out to build a photo sharing app. He started out to build a gaming company and realized, oh crap, this is going nowhere. We need to pivot this. And that happens in most startups. There's some type of large changes that goes into who you're selling or how it works, et cetera. If you're selling a token that works in a certain way, how does that work in the future if that certain way has nothing to do with what the startup eventually evolves into? I mean, I think it's the same, right? If you think about the current legal structure, the utility token is really just a prepaid software purchase. You're saying, I think this open source software project is interesting. I'm willing to buy some tokens to use the software. You know, when I buy a copy of Microsoft Office, I don't know what the next version is going to do and how it's going to change. And I just sort of take that risk as the customer. And so I think, you know, very much the same here. You know, when you buy a token, you're getting the use of that project software as that project evolves. And, you know, it wasn't just Flickr, right? I invested in Discord, which was also a video game that became a gamer chat app that now is the place where a lot of ICOs are having their chats. So, you know, you're, when you buy into software, either as an investor or a pre-purchaser, you're getting whatever the software evolves into. And that's you know, just sort of how it works. Yeah, I think one of the interesting problems there, that you're, I 100% agree with you, but one of the things that hasn't yet been solved in the token space is, you know, when, when these companies pivot uh, in the existing mechanism, they often go and raise additional money at some point for their new product. And the way ICOs have been running so far and tokens also been running so far is they really only sell once and they haven't planned for the contingency of ever needing to sell a meaningful, you know, continued amount of tokens or, you know, ever needing increased funding. So I'm really interested in seeing how the you know, post-ICO funding models for these tokens start to work. Because if you do have to pivot and, uh, you know, you burn a bunch of capital and you need to go and have some more capital to, to complete the project, it's tough to see where that's coming from because structuring an equity investment, that's really tough. And then they often don't have enough tokens to sell in any sort of meaningful way. So that's, I think, a big unsolved problem. Well, EOS did sort of the first fixed to that, so to speak, by having that daily auction for a year. I'm not sure it was a good idea, but I think we're going to see more of that type of innovation. You're also seeing people hold back a lot of tokens so that they could do a secondary sale. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we're going to see lots of experiments and most of them will be bad. And that's the nature of experiments. Speaking of secondary but, sales. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Gil. No, I was just going to say, like, the worst case, if the project runs out of cash, you can always fork the project and try again. Would you trust a company that runs out of cash on a massive ICO? Uh, depends how interesting their thing was. I mean, Peapod ran out of cash, and it's a really useful grocery service even today on the East Coast. Tesla so, ran out of not, cash. <laughs> Tesla ran out of cash. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, as a general rule, no. And then there's always the exception to the rule, right? But you're a smart investor. You've done this a lot. Most of, not most of the people, there's a lot of Bitcoin whales and people that just have massive crypto cash. But how do you protect mom and pop and Joe Schmo who have no idea what they're doing and they're getting ads on LinkedIn? Yeah, I, I don't have a perfect answer for that. I mean, Reggae yeah, but again, yeah. tried to do it in That's one sense. That's just noise. Well, but, actually, but again, but, this, this spending, spending time thinking about this is really noise. Right? Actually, I mean, you know, these guys, you know. They, go ahead, Luke. Go on. No, I was just going to say, you know, uh, uh, that the, the fact that, that, that people need to be protected is utter crap, right? The way we protect them is, no, you can't invest in Facebook when it's private because you're too stupid and you need to be protected from the greatest companies in the world. So, you know, protecting people from their own stupidity isn't something the government should be involved in. What the government should do is let people do what they want to do as long as it doesn't hurt themselves. That means less you paperwork know, and less uh, government I mean, jobs, though. So then ultimately they're killing themselves, <laughs> which no governments do. It always gets worse. The only thing the SEC but, cares about is protecting investors at the at all other costs. We no, they don't. The no, they, 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 they don't care about FINRA is just the mafia, right? FINRA is a self-regulating body. They don't care what you do. They want people to break the law so that they can go find them and line their pockets. And the SEC doesn't, doesn't, doesn't go around finding Bernie Madoff because that's too fucking hard. So they go around and they, 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 they go after good people who don't dot an I and cross a T. They're not really going after the bad guys because that's really hard. So, Matt, it's, it's funny. You, you echoed a comment I got from a reporter a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, how are we going to protect all the old ladies who are investing in Bitcoin? <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, 
do you seriously think a 65 year old woman can figure <laughs> out how to get a wallet, set up an account on Coinbase, move money? Like, like this shit is hard. There are no retirees doing it because they're not, you know, there are very few retirees that have the level of technical competence because this shit is hard. It's actually really hard to lose money only because it's really hard to get your money into the system. I'm so tired so, of my 50-year-old friends calling me saying, can you tell me how to invest in crypto? The biggest businesses <laughs> are built on the pipes. So the guys who make this stupidly simple are the ones who are going to make a shit ton of money because that's how, you make, that's how you make Coinbase, other people that are doing things for managing wallets that don't actually get hacked, and anything that yeah. simplifies it so you can have the 50, 60, 70-year-old. What I'm saying, I don't agree with this. What I'm saying, though, is traditionally the government optimizes for paperwork. The more, the merrier. And yeah. trying to slow innovation where it sees it's losing control. I just was curious now, on your thoughts. Now, you know, I, I always have to Cisco Ebert everything, right? So my, my counter to Lou is I think government regulation always happens when something becomes worth regulating. And I think the size of the crypto market has gotten big enough that it would be foolish to think government wouldn't poke around and try to find a way to get involved. And, and I think that's, you know, a sign of success and something in some ways we should celebrate. So Joey, I had a question for you. You're running the fund, you're making investments, you're also running Algor. One of the problems that I see or one of the challenges is you have LPs. Are you investing in equity? Are you investing in tokens? And how do you distribute that? Because tokens are much more liquid than than equity. So there's kind of complications in terms of if, for instance, Peter Thiel just sold off a bunch of his Facebook stock. Oh, shit, is something going wrong with Facebook? But now you can do that before Facebook even goes public. Thoughts? Yeah. So so um, as far as the, the equity versus token stuff, we have separate funds. So the, the VC fund is entirely separate from the um, hedge funds that you know actually trade the most liquid cryptocurrencies. That's entirely separate from the hedge fund that buys the tokens. That that part is pretty well separated. As far as what happens, you know, what what does it mean with market dynamics if someone you know decides they want to sell a bunch of a token? And well, in the equity world, it's much harder to do because you have to you know find someone to do an OTC trade, and a lot of the times this the startup will prohibit you from even doing that. That's you know an interesting new dynamic. That said, I mean, I think I think the way it's going to play out is is similar to how if you look at like biotech and pharma. Those companies have historically gone public much earlier than any other sort of company, just because the VCs won't fund them. So when you see companies that, you know, would normally be Series A, Series B stage, the biotech ones are, are a lot of the times already public. So I think if you want to look at a comparative example for like what happened, what has happened in the past in this sort of scenario, they're good ones to look at. So if you look at their price charts, they're all over the place. They're super volatile. So if you look at a biotech company throughout its history, even the most successful ones, you know, they'll go up from like a dollar to a hundred dollars, down to twelve dollars, down to five dollars, up to twenty. And you know, then when they have the drug out and it's successful, they'll, you know, be at 150 or 200, something like that. And so I think they're gonna be volatile. For an investor, what that means is you, you know, investors probably stand to lose the most money in when when they're in these sorts of markets, as an investor, it's better to kind of almost be be locked up and, and forced not to sell than it is to be looking at everything on a daily basis because you'll end up losing a lot of money. If you look at the most successful mutual fund in the 2000s, the average investor returns was something like negative 5%. The average fund returns was 14%. And it's because the investors, uh, or sorry, sold at the bottom and bought at the top almost universally. So that's that's like the, the main practical consideration here is you have to be sure to try to avoid those behavioral biases as best as you can. How are you guys doing that? All of you. So our, our digital asset fund right now is it's it's on like a quarterly rebalancing strategy. So we're not the type of guys who, you know, we see a price trigger and we're gonna at three AM and we're gonna make a huge order based off of it. Uh, I don't think that sort of super discretionary trading is, you know, very sustainable. So we just don't do it. Trying to do things much more systematic. Even when we do start trading at higher frequencies, that still will be pretty systematic and you know, based off actual data. So for the digital asset fund, we're trying to do things in a very quantitative way. With the ICOs, it's you know still pretty discretionary because there's just not enough data to go off of. You're basically investing <laughs> in seed, seed stage companies, but they're public, you know, from from day one or or day you know one plus sixty or something like that. And so for that stuff, 
the best you can do is, you know, due diligence them as much as you can on the tech side and the and on whether the token makes sense at all. There's a lot of stuff. Even some of the projects that have raised, you know, above 100 million, their their models don't make any sense. And and so those are the sorts of things we try to avoid. But of course, you'll, you're always going to make some mistakes, right? But um, that's what we're kind of trying to to evade is those things where it, the model just doesn't make any sense at all. You really want, in like a simple sentence, you really want something where the token's needed. And if you were to remove the token, the platform would be worse off for it. If you can remove the token and make things better overall for everyone, then in that scenario, I don't think those things are going to have value in the long run. And if you look at the popular ICOs, 90, 90 plus percent of them are that model. And so when you asked earlier, you know, what's going to happen when, when the market turns south? Well, I think it's, I think it's basically the ones that are garbage are going to go down, you know, 95% or down to zero. Everything else is going to be hit by collateral damage and they'll be down, you know, 50, 60% or whatever. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. How do you survive that bust? Because what happens when everyone sells? Is that going to crash Ethereum, Bitcoin and take most of the money out of the system? I don't think it'll take most of it out. You know, I think at this point, we've kind of hit enough of an escape velocity where like, I don't foresee Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, going to zero. Whereas, you know, five years ago, uh, when I bought Bitcoin, I, I always said, oh, it's going to go to 10,000 or zero. At this, at this point, you know, I don't think it's going to zero. We could see a pretty hefty correction, though. Like I was, I was learning the numbers and looked, realized like if Bitcoin went down like 80 something percent, it would still be up like 30 percent for the year, um, which is kind of crazy to, to think about. What do you guys think? You know, I, I, I have a word that I use to, de, to describe the tendency of markets to become bubbles and crash and become bubbles again. And the word I use to describe that is capitalism. That's what the markets do. And so, you know, it, what, what you have to do as an investor is actually understand what the value of something is. You know, Warren Buffett says uh, uh, you want to be scared when everybody's greedy and you want to be greedy when everybody's scared. And, you know, that's much easier said than done. You know, the, the easiest way to do that is there's something called portfolio science. And portfolio science tells you you invest a certain amount at certain intervals and you just keep on investing and investing. And as Joey was talking about, you rebalance when things get out of balance. It's a science. Few people actually, you know, we laugh at people in Kansas because they don't believe in evolution. And then most of us here don't actually follow portfolio science. So guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you that this is all brought to you guys by nobody. There's no advertising. The syndicate.vc, you can find the podcast, you can find other great roundtables. You can join our syndicate and invest alongside us. And okay, enough of the bullshit. Let's jump back into Wait. the interesting stuff. Oh, I'll oh. be a sponsor. That sounds good. Oh, Gil wants to be a sponsor. Okay, Gil, how much, <laughs> how much are you on the line for? How many Bitcoins are you dropping? Yeah. How many Bitcoin does it cost? I don't know. Oh, it costs, it Sorry, costs a couple. Going. I was talking to a guy, I was at a cryptocurrency meetup here in Zurich uh, a week ago, maybe. And he bought a, he bought a speaker back in the day for 2,600 Bitcoin. He was, uh, he was kicking himself <laughs> over that one. But um, Andy, future for ICOs 2018, what's the market looking like? What's it tapping out to be? Yeah, I think we're going to see a, a real separation of, of uh, like I said earlier, the, the signal from the noise. And I think we're going to see increased diligence expectations from people and disclosure uh, expectations from, from these token sales. Um, and so, you know, I believe certainly that the, the really high quality token sales, the ones that are high quality projects and have a good reason to do uh, a token sale or an ICO, they will continue to raise the capital that they need for, to build their projects. Lower quality sales uh, disappear or fail. And, and, you know, many have failed this year already. Uh, a very high percentage of them do, but I think that'll continue and we're going to see the trend lines going in what I would say is the right direction, where the high quality ones succeed and the low quality ones don't. But I, I don't see it going away. I also see hey. and I this earlier, but both kind of increased thinking around different token sale models, perhaps ones that allow for multiple sales, uh, whether you know planned multiple sales or discretionary multiple sales, as well as uh, increased thinking around other ways to get early distribution like airdrops and other other. Hey, Andy, you know, I just want to quickly just follow up on, on just uh, something you mentioned earlier. I'm, I'm actually an, an advisor at you now props. Um, yeah. I think what they're doing is super, super interesting. And I just think it would be interesting to hear from your perspective, you know, because obviously you guys, I have to assume are seeing as much as anybody in the space in terms of, you know, opportunities to put on the platform. So, you know, what about you now, you now 
kind of attracted you and made you guys say, yeah, this is the next thing we want to put on the platform? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for me, it's a couple of things. I think it's our first, you know, what we would call an application token or an application protocol token. And, and so we're really interested to have them on and, you know, run the, the experiment of how the coinless community responds to that, which I think will be very favorably. And, and they've, what really attracted us to them is the quality of the team and the amount of thought that's gone into this process, their history of shipping product, their history of you know, nailing campaigns and building, building products. And that's just something that not a lot of these teams have right now. So to go with a, a, you know, a, a token that we're very confident is going to ship, that we're very confident is going to have you know, usage and traction on day one uh, is super appealing. And I think they've come at it from the right angle. So you know, just between the, the team, their history, uh, and the immediate use cases for the product, it's, it's uh, some more excited about So Matt, I'll take the contrarian position, right? Because I passed <laughs> on you now, and I didn't think it was that good a deal. And when someone tells me that they know the high-quality deals, I always get worried because I've been doing this for 20 years, and I'm not always sure I know which ones are the high-quality deals. So you know, my forecast for 2018 is there's going to be more ICOs, there's going to be more small ones, there's going to be more speculative ones, as well as more high-quality ones. And the best sort of analogy I have to point to as an example of that is for the last 30-something years, I've never talked to anyone who said investing in restaurants is a good way to make money. And yet every day another restaurant opens in New York and San Francisco and Chicago. And people keep innovating and keep trying things because, you know, humans are ambitious dreamers who are not always, you know, tethered to reality. And sometimes that works out well. Most of the time it doesn't. But I don't think that, thing, you know, we're going to see a flight to quality because the decentralized nature of ICOs allows anyone and everyone to start one and anyone and everyone to participate. And people who think you can control that, I think, are, you know, I'll, I'll, let's just say I'll take the other side of that bet if we're going to do a gentleman's bet for a dollar. You're only going to bet Gil? a dollar. Come on, Gil. With regards to you now, and this is I'm more of a broader question, I'd just be interested in, in your view on, you know, one of the things that attracted me to them besides, you know, I, I thought a great management team and, and, you know, I thought, you know, really great use of, of, of the token is, as, as Andy talked about, which is obviously critical that, you know, every sophisticated investor uh, thinks about and looks about, but is that they have a very significant installed base of users um, already. So, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're still there because I'm not seeing you anymore, but uh, assuming that you're still there, Gil, you know, how do you, do you see that, you know, an existing installed user base as a, as a positive, a negative, or, or is it, or is it, you know, not, Informative. I mean, I've seen a ton of recent token launches that are consumer sites that tack on a token. Yep. See, but this and is different. This is a two side. This is a two sided market. So the yep. reason why the reason why cryptocurrencies are interesting is they're legal Ponzi schemes. It, you get involved, and you want to get your friends involved because the more friends you get involved, it makes the network more valuable. It helps your friends, and holy cow, this actually makes me more money too. So it means you can hack a lot of things. I've been I've been doing a quite a bit of blogging on Medium as well. And the interesting thing <laughs> is when you look at when you, yeah, Lou, thanks Lou for that idea. And uh, the interesting <laughs> thing is when you look into marketplace and marketplace type dynamics, something doesn't have to be sold, but where you have a two-sided market, a token enables you not only to incentivize early adopters, but to keep that incentivization loop going. And that's why it would be very interesting with video. So like, for instance, my background is e-commerce. For people that don't know, I started an e-commerce, com- a couple e-commerce companies. Two of them went well, sold both of them, and primarily via Amazon. And with Amazon, Amazon has one of the most dominant marketplaces, one of the most dominant business positions in the world. Look at Bezos, $100 million man. He's jacked like Arnold. And uh, <laughs> the thing is, it's almost impossible to disrupt a business like that unless you make early adopters financially incentivized, which is why cryptocurrencies are going, going bonkers. That- if someone came to me and pitched a token sale to build a decentralized Amazon, I would pass on that too. Like it's <laughs> I, just, it, it, you know, again, it goes back to, is the token the primary source of utility or is the token this thing you're tacking on to sort of make your website look cooler so you can do an ICO? And yeah, I, I, my, so my fear with a lot of these companies that are issuing a token is they're just, you know, they're, they're putting a little lipstick on it, issuing a token 
and trying to find a way to make their website work with a token nobody really wanted, as opposed to Filecoin, which I think is legitimately an attempt to build a really interesting decentralized infrastructure that you couldn't do off an existing platform. Yeah, I, I would push back on the on the Ponzi thing as as well. I mean, there there are some tokens that clearly are like that, like uh, you know BitConnect, which is literally actually a Ponzi scheme. Um, but uh, but but there are other ones like you know Augur is a simple example because it's the one I know best. When you're reporting in Augur, the idea is that in exchange for reporting, you get paid more fees the more popular Augur is, and you're not paid fees and like you're not it's not recursive. Like you're not paid fees in rep which would be re- very recursive. And if that were the case, I would say it's basically a Ponzi scheme. However, you're paid fees in the currencies that the markets are denominated in. Um, so you can't actually calculate like a cash flow. You could theoretically do a DCF on Augur if you, you know, figure out what numbers to predict, which is the hard part, of course. But uh, but at least you can do one. And I think uh, once other systems start switching to proof of stake as well, that that's another kind of interesting dynamic that, that will start to play where these assets, actually some of them become yielding. Yeah, well, I think maybe, Matt, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think Ponzi scheme is probably not the right analogy. I would say a mass delusion. And your point is, if enough people own a token, they may become delusional and encourage their friends to buy the token. And so the token goes up and the delusion perpetuates. Bitcoin. And that could allow you to break a network effect that someone else had because everyone wants to you know, join Lyft because Lyft has a token and Uber doesn't. But it's not, it's I think not that just having a token. It is an interesting mechanic. It, it, it's a very it's a very interesting mechanic because there are some businesses that are, in essence, nearly untouchable. Facebook, Amazon, Google's in trouble because of voice. Apple's in trouble because they don't do anything interesting anymore. But there's a lot of businesses that I would consider extremely well developed and almost untouchable. But if you do decentralized, but there's a yeah. go on. Filecoin is a decentralized AWS, and the reason why it can work is not just that it's decentralized, it's that you onboard people because they're getting increasing value. Because as demand for the token goes up, the value of the token goes up. So you want to get everyone you know that owns a website to start using Filecoin and not AWS. Maybe, but if I've got $10 worth, do I really care enough to like badger all my friends? Developers do. Yeah, look, I, I don't think anybody really knows uh, the answer to this. Uh, just a, a couple quick things. One, one of my favorite charts, and I love, uh, I love graphs. I love graphs that tell stories because you know a simple graph can tell a story that better than you know thousands of words can and and one of the greatest graphs was in the economist a couple years ago and it showed the market cap percentage of the top 100 in other words how what percentage of that of the total market cap of the top 100 tech companies did each company each of those 100 tech companies have and it started in 1980 when IBM had more than 70% of all the market cap market share of the top 100 tech companies. And then as we moved from the mainframe to the desktop era, Microsoft topped out at 35%, having the, the most. And then as we went from desktop to mobile, Apple peaked at, uh, at and, and they're still at close to uh, 30% market share. And, and, and what that graph tells you is, is that there's nothing constant but change. And, and we've all been through periods where it looked like this company was going to be dominant forever, but it turns out no company is dominant forever. New technology comes around and new disruption comes around. And, and I think this is the biggest ever. And it's, the impact is always overestimated in the short run and underestimated in the long run. And nobody has any idea how it's really going to turn out, right? But it's incredibly yeah. exciting to be a part of. And the, and the last thing is, is you know, what I've learned, almost every conversation like this, I get a new business idea. And the coin that I'm going to launch from this is I'm going to launch the Ponzi coin, <laughs> where oh it gives you absolutely no value whatsoever other than the hope that somebody will come along and, and pay more for it tomorrow. Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but, but following up on what you're saying, I think it's different this time because you look at the leaders of these tech companies. Zuckerberg will flat out copy or buy anything. So this, I mean, there, similar there's with- a book, similar There's a book about. called This Time It's Different. 600 years of people saying that and being wrong. <laughs> In banking, yes. It's a great book. It's been said thousands of thousands of times, and every time it's been wrong. It turns out but I, it's, you know, it's I'm, never I'm, different. I'm going to go back to this delusion concept, though, Matt, which is 
if your customers and the people involved can actually economically benefit from you winning, I think that is a powerful game mechanic that does change the game for some people. It's a network effect. Do you create a network effect from a network that is just being created? And it's one that involves money, so it's more valuable than any network effect that exists. That's, that's totally not true. Because, because you, know, you know what's worth more than money to most people, particularly the, the amount of money that most people are going to make off of any of these network effects, is status. The reason that Facebook is Facebook is because people go on there. Facebook doesn't pay them any money, but Facebook gives them massive status. They put something up there, their friends like it, and they feel better. And, you know... I think that's a lot more powerful than somebody making, you know, as Gil said, you know, taking a $10 coin that they have and making $20 from it. Uh, gents, I have to hop off right now, but this has been a really fun discussion, Matt. Thanks for hosting and thanks everyone for watching and uh, we're to following up with us. Where's the best place for people to check you out, Andy? Coinless.co, see our upcoming token sales, sign up for our email list and uh, shoot me an email, Andy at Coinless.co anytime. Go do it. Send him, send him your pitches. They better be good. Anything that's rubbish yeah. and it's totally loose fault. So, thank, so <laughs> okay. thanks, for, thanks, thanks for being on, Andy. What are you guys excited about now? I've got a hop too. I'm at uh, I'm at the uh, consensus here in New York. It's uh, rocking. <laughs> What's consensus? It's a uh, CoinDesk. Uh, is that what it's called? It's CoinDesk's big uh, uh, conference at the Marriott Marquis, and it's packed. No worries. Thanks for tuning in, Lou. Best place nice. for people to Tough hit on, you. Luke. See you later, guys. Is there anything that you guys are excited about? Anything that you guys think we should talk about at this point? I think we covered a lot. Joe, you haven't said much in a while. Anything you want to add? Um, so, yeah, I say, I mean, the stuff I'm most excited about in the kind of midterm is actually seeing this stuff start to scale. So I think that's not really happened for Bitcoin to any like real degree. Even if you look at stuff like Lightning Network, it requires so much staying collateral to do any sort of real financial application with it. No trader would ever trade on a trading platform that uses Lightning Network. It's just like if you have to require every single node along the path to have the same collateral, it's just not doesn't make sense. And so I'm excited to actually see some some stuff with scalability like surrounding Ethereum, things like sharding and plasma over the next couple of years. I actually kind of when I first got into Bitcoin, I thought, oh, it's like 1990. Now I think that Bitcoin was basically Bitcoin was basically the ARPANET. And with Ethereum and all the smart contract stuff, we're actually starting to see the real internet. Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it's this great kind of digital gold 2.0 sort of thing, but it's not where the consumer stuff is going to happen. It's not where the consumer stuff is happening today. And so I'm just really excited to finally see Ethereum scale because it, it's easy to kind of look back and say, well, it's been nine years and nothing scaled. So why is it ever going to scale? But really, I, I think the right way to think about it is, well, Ethereum's been out two years and people there are actually working on serious scalability tech. Uh, they're not debating whether to modify the block size by a factor of 2x or not. And then the other kind of thing I'm excited for is I'm excited to see some stable coins be released in the wild over the next few months. Because I think that's one big barrier to adoption of, of uh, you know, say if you wanted to use Augur, make a bet or, you know, any sort of financial contract, you don't want the volatility of crypto. And so once, once those start coming out, I think that'll be exciting as well. It is the early internet era, but at, at the same time, we're going to have the pop. The question is, when do you guys predict do you predict a big bust? Because what's going to happen, in my opinion, it's a boom, it's going to bust, and then it's going to go back up because it's game-changing technology that, like we said, has built-in network effects. So it's going to have very interesting implications. Do you guys have any predictions? I, I'm not a hedge fund manager, so I try not to predict the market. My only point would be there have been 80% declines in the value of Bitcoin more than once. It's entirely possible there will be again. That's sort of irrelevant from a 10-year perspective. Yeah, from my, from my side on the, on the market side, you know, I think if you ever try to, you know, like predict like an exact date, or whatever, you're just going to get killed. Even, even as a hedge fund manager, you, you can't time the market. What you can do to, to beat the market is, is be smart about how you do things. So you can weight your assets according to risk parity. It's the only kind of portfolio construction that actually performs out of sample. Modern portfolio theory uh, doesn't work. And the reason why is it requires you to very accurately predict future returns, which no one can do. Not even Warren Buffett can do it. He buys stuff that's cheap and undervalued and holds for a really long time. And eventually his thesis plays out, but he's not timing the market on, you know, a, a couple year scale. And so I think, you know, when I look at it, yeah, I think there's a decent chance we see a huge correction over the next few years. I think the way to kind of come out that, you know, on the other side 
is by just doing you know really intelligent portfolio construction and, and doing uh, the best you can with regards to managing risk. And then another thing I think is that you know a lot of the stuff we've been working at at Pantera over the past eight months has been on like the quant side and generate signals based off of like sentiment data, network data, and uh, a bunch of order book and pricing data. And we haven't started trading with that yet. But I think once once that kind of starts, which we're just kind of putting the finishing touches on it now, that's the sort of stuff that I trust much more than myself because it's much more rigorous and systematic. Uh, you're never going to you know avoid a downturn. In, in the long run, like statistically speaking, you're not going to avoid downturns by just kind of having huge discretionary kind of gunslinging like, yeah, I feel like the market's going to go down. Eventually, you're going you're gonna to get wiped out doing that. But if you do things very rigorous and quantitative, in, in very kind of systematic, I think that's how you get a sustainable edge in the, in the long run. So that's kind of what we're focused on. I'd agree with that. I wish there was a bot that let me put a dollar a day into Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? So I didn't have to think about it and I didn't have to worry about it. And just, you know, over 10 years, it adds up. If you guys are listening, build that and sell it to Gil. You can charge at least 25 cents a day. And I think he would be game for it. Guys, one, one big question I have is, in my opinion, tokens will replace stocks because they're significantly more liquid. They're significantly more trackable. A, do you believe this assumption? And B, when will the crypto market cap be larger than the market cap of the New York Stock Exchange? Well, there's a company called Polymath that's trying to do that by securitizing, you know, you know putting securities essentially into tokens. So at that point, they're really the same thing, right? You have a share of IBM, you can just hold it in your digital wallet or a share of some fund like Panthera, and you can hold it in your wallet. So to me, it's it's just a way to access existing securities. It doesn't change the securities market, really. You don't think we're in for big disruption there? You don't think that something will completely replace the stock market? I mean, I already pay $0 for trades. I don't know how much cheaper it can get. I think the more interesting thing is, is securities like mortgage-backed securities or auto-backed loan securities that get packaged up and now could be sold one at a time and again sort of take money out of the bank's pocket and put it into the consumer's pocket you know credit card portfolios the sort of stuff that lending club has done i think you'll see also a lot of um you know fractional ownership of stuff like there's a lot of markets right now that are just very illiquid but if you had a very easy way to securitize them which is a lot of what this tech enables then they would actually be liquid my favorite example of this is like the art market there's about $3 trillion of value of art around the globe, but only about 30 or $40 billion of it trades annually, which makes it the most illiquid market in the world. Uh, so I think that's like a classic example of something that, that should be much more tradable. You can also make the same argument for you know real estate. You have to buy a whole building. You can't really buy a, a piece of it. Um, if I want to invest in real estate as like a you know retail trader, I'm really forced to buy like a REIT. And I'm young, so I'd, I'd rather buy the 10% most risky stuff in the REIT. But I can't do that today, um, and it would be great if I could. And I think I think you'll be able to do that, you know, in the next decade or so, as with this sort of tech. So I'm really excited about that stuff. I agree with Gil. You know, stocks will be tokenized. I don't think tokens are going to replace stocks. They're just like you will have tokenized stocks. Some benefits of it, I think, are, you know, yeah, you already trade at zero fees. But one thing that I think will be different in the future is right now it's very difficult for me and as an American to trade, say, a Chinese stock. And it's practically impossible for a Chinese person to trade, say, Apple. And I think over the next decade or so, that's that's going to be something that I think changes. It would be a shame if it didn't. Like, it makes so much intuitive sense that like you should be able to actually have global financial markets. And why don't we have them already? And this tech seems like the best chance to actually enable that. So I'm, I'm excited about that. That's pretty cool. I like that. What about payments? Like grabbing a coffee, paying for it with XYZ currency? Anything we see on the horizon? I don't. I don't think so. Not. No. Is the yeah. is the yeah. Is the maybe if someone creates a good maybe if someone creates a good stable coin, you know, maybe theoretically you could you could cut out you know if he's a Mastercard cut. I think it, I think it's really far off compared to the I think the equity stuff will happen way before any of that if if it does happen at all. Just because retailers want the cash immediately, so they're cashing out. Well, the consumer wants the loyalty points. There's just a lot in the in the loan. There's lots of reasons why Visa. It's hard to beat right now. Well, one one thing I could see happening though, which isn't as you know, it's not as radical, libertarian, disruptive. But I could see Visa and Mastercard disintermediating a lot of the merchant banks. So right now, if you look at Visa's fees, you know, around two percent, 
most of that doesn't go to Visa right now. Most of it goes to the banks that they work with. So if Visa, by using blockchain tech, could disintermediate those banks, Visa could double the fees that Visa charges, double Visa's you know revenue, and cut out everyone else, and it would still be cheaper for the consumer. Which is kind of like when I first got into crypto, I thought, well, you know, this may be what disrupts Visa and Mastercard, but it's actually no, it's going to be what allows them to disrupt a lot of the banks that they work with. I think. And then you store it somewhere else. Hey, Joey, someone had a question for you. Any thoughts on Tether and Bitfinex? Yeah, <laughs> Tether just seems really weird. Uh, I don't have many thoughts on Bitfinex, but on, but on Tether, it's very bizarre that the supply is almost monotonically, it's almost always increasing. And it always increases in very, very round numbers. And so, so something seems kind of pretty off there. And then the other kind of thing that's very weird about it is, you know, they supposedly had this bank in Thailand or whatever. And I looked up, now they don't even tell you what bank they're with, but the one they used to be with, I looked up the bank's AUM and their funds would have been about 1% of the bank's AUM. And that that's like, I'm pretty sure that's not even allowed under like the Basel three global banking requirements. So, so something's like off. Personally use it. We don't use it with Pantera. That said, Pete, there's a lot of concern about it, like, you know, blowing up and messing up the market. I don't think it has enough sway to actually impact the market to, to a serious degree. If the market cap of Tether was like, say, 10 billion, then I'd be much more concerned about it. But given that it's under a billion at this point, it's, it's not, I think most of the price increase is really just caused by retail and, you know, some smaller institutions getting in as opposed to, say, Tether, you know, being fraudulent or something. I read that. They were supposedly owned by the same shadowy corporations, and there were some weird things with hacking and losing money going on. Talk about talk about the the black side of the cryptocurrency where things just go missing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Tether one specifically, you know what happened there is somebody somebody stole thirty million dollars in Tether, and they ended up like hard forking it to make it so the person couldn't spend it or something. But yeah, one of the that's one of the biggest challenges crypto faces is. There's a weird balance between making a good user experience that's easy to use and also not getting all your money stolen. Because like if someone logs into, you know, your Instagram account, who cares? Worst case scenario, they send your friends some stupid photos or they see your photos or something, right? But if someone logs in logs into an account that controls, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in cryptocurrency, well that that sucks because you probably just got it all stolen and it's really hard to track it. So I think that's a big challenge. There's no kind of one sort of cure-all solution for it. There's a lot of neat stuff people are working on. I think like, you know, eventually I think like what really makes sense to me is like, you know, if you're the, the, the trusted hardware module on your smartphone uh, could be part of a hardware wallet, like one key for it. And maybe you have the other key somewhere else or something. And I think the other important thing is that if you're dealing with small amounts, it doesn't really have to be that secure, right? Like if, if someone steals $100, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it sucks whenever someone steals money from you, but but I, I kind of view it, there's two baskets of crypto you have, right? One is the kind of daily spending money, like the money you have in your pocket, in your wallet, that, yeah, somebody can beat you up and steal it, and it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. And the other is, you know, say you have thousands of dollars in it, and that's the stuff that you want, want to be super secure, but ideally, you're not touching it on a daily basis anyway. So essentially, what people are using as stores of value, Bitcoin primarily, because it doesn't have a lot of other utility. Yep. So, Gil, we have a great solution. Apparently, Coinbase does auto-investing for Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Litecoin daily, weekly, or monthly. Thanks, Scott Fox, for, for popping that one in there. So you have your solution right there, and it's U.S.-based, so I'm sure you'll love that. I do. The fees are a little high, but I'll take a look. The fees are... I mean, you might be able to get a little pull. Maybe you uh, you, you give them a little bit of a push, a promo, and they... Uh, <laughs> I don't know the guys at Coinbase, but I'm sure you, you know someone who does. Any... um. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Brian as a sponsor for the next call. That's what we'll do. <laughs> exactly, Brian. If you're listening right now, we'll multiply our number of viewers times a thousand and it'll sound way sexier. All right. I, I got to run through, Matt. I'm running a little over. Awesome. Where's the best place for people to check you out and connect with you, Gil? We'll wrap, uh, we'll wrap it up here. It's been awesome. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thanks. Where's the best place? Uh, Facebook. My name's weird enough that it's easy to find me. Gil Pencina, guys. We'll put links and everything. If you go to the syndicate.vc, look around for crypto. We'll have the replay there. We'll have links to Joey, Lou, Andy, and Gil, and everybody that's been on here. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Joey, best place for people to hit you up. Say, hey, hopefully invest in the fund once you're raising a new one. Yeah, on the, on the Pantera side, joey at penteracapital.com. If you want to reach out to me about Augur, joey at augur.net.
Don't forget the syndicate. I met Joey initially through a syndicate. He does some great angel deals. Oh, yeah, that's true. You can just find me on AngelS for that. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. That's going to be the end of this. We're going to call it a wrap. The syndicate.vc. We interview some of the best investors, VCs, operators. Guys like Joey have been on. Gil's been on. Lou's been on, actually. Hopefully, we'll get Andy at some point. Go check us out. Subscribe if you haven't already. And then say hey to everybody and thank them for coming on and being awesome. Thanks, Joey. It's been fun. Thanks. Take care. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.